Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Not part of any series that we're in, just something I would like to uh, share with you this morning. I must admit it's really good to be back this morning in this pulpit after four weeks plus of forced inactivity. Several people asked me if I got a lot of books read. No. I started one. I haven't completed it yet. For I learned that um, this is really not a relaxed uh, vacation time as I had somewhat anticipated. It's uh, frankly a time of uh, a personal struggle a bit. Many of you know what I mean, for you've been there too. You you hurt like crazy, and uh, you don't feel like doing anything. And indeed, the pain meds you take make you feel like you might be crazy. And then you go to sleep all the time. And then suddenly you get some zeal to rise up and seize the day, and you realize you can't do it for very long. But beyond all of that, for me, being forced to be alone and quiet always means being forced into reflection and self-evaluation. And I don't know about you, but that's uncomfortable. One thing I did enjoy was uh, watching the rescue of the Chilean miners. Frankly, I identified with that second miner that came to the surface, uh, Mario Sepulveda is his name. He said, of those 69 days, I've been near God, but I've also been near the devil. But God won. And though I've not been confined to a dark, hot mine, I praise God for the battles of my soul and the fact that the Lord seems to have won. So this morning I ask you to come with me to a really familiar text, but one which has been my daily food for weeks. I read this text every, every single day for a long, long time. Romans chapter 1, the first 17 verses. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit." Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not control. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. 
For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is a big text, and if you pick out a good commentary on the book of Romans, you'll have about 50 pages on this text, probably. We can't possibly exhaust it all. Let me just share three things that uh, I've come to learn from this text. The first is this. Jesus sets us free from sin. Jesus sets us free from sin. The few words in the whole Bible is comforting as the first phrase of verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow, we know and love this truth, don't we? This is the gospel. It's what we just talked about in reading Galatians. Uh, uh, Once we were defiled and guilty, but Christ Jesus came and went to the cross to pay the penalty of our sin and remove our guilt. And now those who trust him are forgiven. The guilt is gone. As David said, blessed is the man uh, 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 whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. But great as that truth is, That's not really the point of Romans 8. It's true. It's the gospel. But it's not really the point of Romans 8. Early in Romans, back in chapter 3 and 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul talked about guilt being removed, about being justified, declared righteous in Christ Jesus. But that's not the focus of Romans 8. Here the Spirit is teaching us not about Jesus saving us from sin's guilt, but about Jesus setting us free from sin itself, from the power of sin, from our addiction to sin, from the patterns of sin, the practices of sin in our life. To put it in theological terms, earlier in Romans, Paul taught about being justified about God changing our status in an instant when we believe from being guilty and condemned to being righteous in Christ. But now he's teaching us about being sanctified, about God uh, changing our whole living so that our practice every day matches our new righteous status. Or to put it in street terms, To forgive someone some drug-induced act is a wonderful expression of grace. But what they need is more than just to be forgiven. They need deliverance from the addiction. And Jesus came not just to forgive us, but to free us from our addiction to sin. In this text, you see, sin is not thought of primarily as a stain on our record which condemns us. Sin here is thought of as an active power 
in our lives which is destroying us. In the verses just prior to this, in Romans chapter 7, uh, we, we, we hear this. Let me, let me just show you three places in verse 15 and 17. We read, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but, I do, but, I hate, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. It is sin living in me. Not just a stain, right? Sin living in Verse 20 says it again. If I no longer do what I want to do, it is no longer I who do it. It is sin living in me that does it. And the third time, down in verses 21 and 23. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. But Jesus sets us free from sin, from both the guilt of sin and the governing power of sin working within us. Now that promise of deliverance permeates the first few verses of Romans chapter 8. We see it in verse uh, 2. Through, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now the word law confuses us here because normally when we talk about the law, we're talking about the Ten Commandments or the, or, or the book of the law in the Old, the Old Testament. But according to my best Greek lexicon, in this instance, law refers not to a set of rules, but to an abstract governing power. So Christ has given us the governing power of the spirit of life to set us free from the governing power of sin and death. We see it again in verse 3. By sending his own son, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now John Stott points out, one would have expected Paul to write that God condemned sin in Jesus in order that we might escape condemnation. And of course God did that. But that's not what he wrote here. What he wrote is that he condemned sin. Christ came to condemn that powerful working of sin in us. Now why is sin so powerful? In us. Especially when we understand that this is all written to Christians. This is not to the world out there saying you're addicted by sin. This is written to us. Why is sin so powerful inside of us? Well, because sin has an ally. An ally right here. Our flesh. Our sinful flesh. Remember, John tells us that the flesh is one of our three great enemies. There's the world and the flesh and the devil. In Galatians 5, Paul gets more explicit and describes what this flesh looks like. Galatians 5, uh, right before the fruit of the Spirit, he describes the works of the flesh. This is what your flesh looks like, folks. You look really nice this morning. I hope I look nice. I don't have a tie. I can't do that yet. But, uh, but, but this is what, if you could pull back all the nice clothes... This is what your flesh looks like. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. All those tendencies are programmed into our spiritual DNA because of Adam's fall into sin. So all the governing power of sin has to do is to simply entice our own flesh to offer to give it what it wants. I've used this illustration uh, before, but let me explain it again. Why does carbon monoxide poison and kill you? Carbon monoxide is not in itself a poisonous gas. But you see, the hemoglobin in your red blood cells that carries oxygen out to the cells of your body loves carbon monoxide. It has a hundred times greater affinity to a molecule of carbon monoxide than it has to a molecule of oxygen. So no matter how much wonderful fresh oxygen there is in the air, if there is any carbon monoxide present, your hemoglobin will latch onto it. And once it does, there's no room to carry oxygen out to your body, to your cells anymore, and you will die of oxygen starvation, hypoxia. Now that's how the power of sin works. Your sinful flesh has a huge affinity to sin. And sin, the power of sin, the principle of sin, just appeals to and exploits that natural affinity to the things of the flesh. You see, that's why God's law can never make us holy. It can show us how sinful we are. But it has no power to change us. That's what we read in verse 3. The law was powerless. Why? Weakened as it was by our sinful nature. Oh, the power of sin. The sinfulness of our flesh. And it doesn't magically disappear when we come to know Jesus. So now what do we do? What do we do? Well, that brings us to our second point, the major thrust of this text. Jesus has sent us into a battle. Jesus has sent us into a battle. Now, if you're going to war, you better know who your enemy is, and you better know who your allies are. In this battle, the enemy is this abstract power, controlling power of sin which is constantly enticing your sin-prone flesh. That's the enemy. But you have one great ally. God has given us his Holy Spirit. Make no mistake, though. Jesus has sent you into a battle. At first glance, it looks like this is rather an easy process. We're told to do just two things here in these first verses. First, in verse 4 and 5, we're told to live according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. That isn't a difficult concept. 
we live according to influences around us. Uh, we, we dress according to the way people dress in our culture. We, we talk according to the way people talk in our culture. We think the way people think in our culture. We live according to some pattern, normally the pattern of the culture in which we live. And the more we do, the more we become like that. But here we're called, so you're a Christian, so now live according to the Spirit of God not according to your fleshly desires. We're to act like the Spirit acts, not like our friends act. We're to think like the Spirit thinks, not like our friends think. We're to do what the Spirit's concerned for, not what our flesh urges us to do. Live according to the Spirit. That's the first thing. Second thing um, goes a bit deeper in verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live according to the, in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Whoops, this gets pretty personal here. What do you think about? When your mind wanders, where does it go? You see, this is a struggle. Take a few pain, pain pills and uh, your mind wanders. And where does it go? When you dream great dreams, are they dreams of the things of the spirit? Or the things of your flesh? When you react to events, are you seeking to react like the spirit reacts? Indeed, do you know the scriptures well enough to know what the spirit would do? But these are pretty straightforward instructions. Walk according to the Spirit and set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Don't walk according to your flesh and don't set your mind on the things of the flesh. Sounds easy. But Galatians 6, a very similar passage, shows us how intense a challenge this is. Let me read. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Same, same truth, right? For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want. Oh, Jesus has sent us into a battle. Romans 13, the Apostle Paul describes the care with which we're to wage this battle. Put on the Lord Jesus. I think that would be walk according to the Spirit. Think according to the Spirit. Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. Starve it. Cut it off. That kind of explains the hyperbole of Jesus' statement on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Make no mistake, you see, Jesus has called us into a daily battle between the indwelling Spirit of God and the indwelling sinful flesh driven by this principle, this controlling principle of sin. And this, dear people, is a life and death struggle. To walk in the Spirit is life and peace, it says here. 
To have your mind set on the things of the flesh is death. Why is this so intense? It's an easy principle. Walk according to the Spirit. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Don't walk according to the flesh. Don't think in the things of the flesh. Why is this so hard? Well, what makes it so intense is that the enemy to be resisted is not out there somewhere wearing some evil-looking clothes or speaking some strange language. The enemy is me. The enemy is self. Jesus repeatedly calls us to self-denial. Six times in the gospel, he tells us to take up the cross. That means die. The problem is not out there, it's in here. Turning to our own ways, Isaiah 53 says. Being lovers of self and lovers of pleasures, Romans 1 says. Being self-willed, as 1 Peter says. That's the problem. In his little book, The Shadow of the Cross, the Reformed Baptist pastor William Chantry describes the battle. Let me read his description of this battle we're in. Every step of progress in sanctification brings the Christian back to the dreadful battleground where many a tear has been shed and many a drop of blood spilled. If you're in Christ, it is a familiar scene. There before you, is the grisly old enemy to spiritual progress. Standing astride the path of obedience to Christ. Self. This monster cries out daily to be served. He challenges the dominion of Christ. He opposes every devotion of time and energy and love to the Lord. But it's a strange war that we may win only by feeling in ourselves the painful blows we give. Every denial of self is felt keenly. Oh, how we would love to change the scene of combat. But on every occasion when we are serious about advancing in righteousness, we must contend with Self. Meanwhile, the whole world says to us, just follow your heart. Do what you feel like doing. Dear people, I don't know the particular traits of your flesh. I only know my own. I don't know whether your problem is lust or greed or bitterness or divisiveness or pride or I don't know. But this I know because God tells us. Christ Jesus has called you to fight to the death against that sinful self. You dare not just follow your heart. You must daily choose to walk in step with the Spirit of God, saturating and setting your mind on the things of the Spirit not on what comes natural to you, the things of your flesh. The Apostle Paul summarizes all this in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. 
For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. But make no mistake, Christ has called us into a battle. Well, about now, you may be saying, well, where's where'd grace go here? This just sounds like hard work. Is this just a pep talk to try harder? Where, where, where is God's grace and mercy and all this? Well, we need to get to the third point. The third point is this. God will not forsake his children. God will not forsake his children. I've been to Bible school for several years. I've been to seminary for several years. I've been in ministry for a lot of years. You know, I think... I learned more about the Lord, though, from raising my kids than just about anything else. I try to be a good father. I try to make sure my kids knew how much I love them. I work to respect my kids as I expected respect from them. I try to be diligent, to be fair, and to be just with my kids. At the same time, I admit I was probably a rather strict uh, father, rules were to be obeyed, infractions were to be uh, punished. But try as I might to be a good father, I am absolutely certain to this day that neither of my kids ever began to dream the lengths to which I would have gone for them. The depth of my love and commitment to them. All of which only made me realize if I, a frail, imperfect human father, had such absolute commitment to these kids, how much more must my heavenly father be committed to me? I would never forsake my kids, and neither will God forsake his children. We can't unpack all the ways the Lord says that in this chapter. But at least let me survey the rest of this text so that you can feel the weight of God's great faithfulness and, and the greatness of his grace. In verse 9, after a severe admonition, we're reminded, but we're not controlled by the flesh because God has given us his spirit. And the spirit, in verse 9, is not some special gift to the spiritual elite. He indwells everyone who belongs to Jesus. And in verse 10 and 11, where we're told the effects of sin are nothing less than deadness of our bodies, we're immediately reminded, but our spirits are alive in Christ. And the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is working resurrection life in us right now and on resurrection day. And just when we may be feeling that we're enslaved all over again, I can't win this battle, it's just depressing, we're reminded with such eloquence of our new situation. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You received the spirit of sonship by which you cry, Abba, Daddy, Father, just like Jesus did. God will not forsake his children. 
Oh, this is not just some theoretical notion of which we try to convince ourselves according to verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And of course, if we're his children, then that makes us heirs uh, uh, of the Father and co-heirs with Christ. And yes, we will suffer, but we will share his glory. Indeed, for God never forsakes his children. Indeed, the whole rest of this chapter only says it again and again. This present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that's coming. We heard that last week from Jeff David. We wait for nothing less than the redemption of the whole creation, including our own bodies. We're not alone. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. He prays for us in ways we don't even understand. God is working all things together, according to verse 28. All things together for good to bring us to glory. Not one will be lost along the way. In fact, we could rightly say, as it says in verse 31, if God is for us, who could be against us? Certainly not God. He's the one that chose us. Certainly not Christ. He's the one who died for us. Indeed, as we read at the end of the chapter, there is nothing. There is absolutely nothing. Nothing in heaven or on earth. Nothing now or nothing to come. No problem. No situation. There is nothing. There is no one who could separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. God will never forsake his children. As William Cooper wrote in his wonderful hymn, You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds of so much dread are filled with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. This is a powerful text. It is weighty in its instruction. It is staggering in its warnings, but it is overbrimming with encouragement. As I endure my own struggles, just like you endure your struggles, here we have hope. First, that Christ Jesus set us free from sin. Not just its guilt, but here especially, its power. He has given us his Holy Spirit to make us holy too. Secondly, let's admit Christ has sent us into a battle. A life and death struggle against our sinful flesh. Choosing daily whether to ally ourselves with the control controlling power of sin or the life-giving power of the Spirit of God. It matters what we choose. Nevertheless, thirdly, we face this struggle in hope, knowing that the God of all grace never forsakes his children. All of which reminds me of the fifth Chilean miner to be rescued. He was the youngest, 18 or 19, I've read both. His name is Jimmy Sanchez. He's the one who seems to have had the most problems in the mine. Lots of problems since. But the day before his rescue, he sent up a note, and it said... There are actually 34 of us down here. Because God has never left us alone. And nor will he abandon or forsake you, my friend. Or me. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, to hear us talk, you would think the Christian life is some kind of Sunday school picnic, some kind of outing at the beach, some kind of just letting go and doing whatever we please and having fun. And we thank you for the joy of knowing you and, and the joy of a whole life, Lord, filled with your blessedness. But we thank you for the times that you remind us that at the same time, those are moments of R&R in the midst of a terrible battle that we will fight as long as we're pilgrims on this earth. A battle between sin controlling and enticing our flesh and the Spirit of God calling us to faithfulness. Thank you that you've given us grace for every situation. We pray that you would give us a heart, Lord to walk according to your spirit and to set our minds on the things of the spirit where there's life and peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.